Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. such a special moment not only had we been there for all 13 nights so it kind of felt like this final you know we were crossing the finish line we'd done it but it also as someone who's not really a sports fan it was like for me I just felt like our team had won the championship whatever sport we were playing I guess the sport was music and fish was our team we had won and we had done it we had been successful we had triumphed We'd gotten to the end of this marathon and the love in that building, the the energy, the joy, the feeling of community and unity and all of this was just the summation of not only 13 nights, but their entire career up to thus far. You know, they started this little band and now they had just completed such a monumental feat at, at the world's greatest arena. It was awe-inspiring. I, I was ready to go buy a fish jersey where I didn't know where they were. I wanted to buy one. This is our team. I'd never been like more proud to be a fish fan. The feeling that we were all in this together and that we had done something amazing. You know, fish and Trey specifically talks about often how He's just another member of this big thing that we're doing. The four guys on stage are just four people amongst this entire community. So the fact that we all got to celebrate in this together was really amazing. 
vindication, really. I mean, I lived in New York for a long time. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan. I'm not a huge sports fan, but I am a diehard Philly fan, especially when I lived in New York. I, I clung to that identity. I never, ever went to the dark side and rooted for the Rangers or anything like that, but I respect the Rangers. And I respect Mark Messier and Brian Leach and that era of like just killer players. And I, every single time that I've been blessed to be able to walk onto the Madison Square Garden floor, and I've never taken it for granted to know that I'm literally standing on sacred ground you're like you lay down on the floor to stretch out and like that's where like you know Muhammad Ali is like like you know splayed out on the floor it's like these legends the greatest of their craft are the only ones allowed in that building so you know you you get to the one end of, of the floor and you're in the rink you know now you're like Messier scores a, a game-winning goal there these moments in history are, are just rippling through time and they come out of that arena. So for my band, the, the, the thing that I'm most fanatical about to set foot in there and to belong there, to own that place as if it's theirs, to be welcomed as if they're the owners, to be given to the keys of that place, it just felt so right. And Fish deserves that recognition. And Fish is among the Muhammad Ali's, the Joe Frazier's, the Mark Messier's. They are elite and you don't have to like them but I would hope that you respect them. And that was a gesture of respect. And, that's, uh, and I had tears in my eyes when the banner was going up. I think it belongs there. It was, it was a huge accomplishment for the band. I'm super proud of them. I'm so grateful that I was able to be there for every note of that run. Just a special thing to be a part of. And uh, we'll eternally be grateful to the band for that. The encore started and the band walked out and you saw the banner and you saw Renee, the photographer, getting the band together to take these incredible photos of the banner being raised, you know, with the crowd in the background. And you saw the love and the happiness in the in the eyes of the, the members of the band. And then they launch into On the Road again. And Trey and Paige are both choking up as they're playing. was the moment the band could you know take their foot off the gas for a second and just enjoy the moment and you just saw the emotion pouring out of them for me it was it was really special to see that because we've all spent a lot of time a lot of money a lot of effort to see this band and it's really nice to have them reflect that emotion back to us Seeing that banner raised was the crowning achievement that will, you know, live on in the rafters at MSG as a reminder of this incredible musical achievement that nobody else has even dared to try. Being there, being a part of it, seeing the band take that like collective deep breath, hearing them choking up, knowing that they were tearing up, and then playing on the road again and saying, here we are, we're four dudes in our 50s. And we're still achieving on an incredibly high level and we still have so much more to accomplish. I was absolutely blown away by that. Now, 
those specific directives. Dancing, getting down, having fun. So began Fish's historic Baker's Dozen Run at Madison Square Garden in New York City in the summer of 2017. That was just five years ago, but given everything that has happened since, it feels like it was an entirely different world back then, like we were different then. And as for Fish, well, they've always been a Phoenix band rising out of their own ashes in a new form, constantly re-emerging from their cocoon with new wings. That's why we keep coming back for more. But the Baker's Dozen represents an undeniable universe within itself, spinning from within the band's multiverse. And if we pay attention, we should be able to feel that it's still spinning. Are you ready? Because it's time to make the donuts. Or maybe it's just time to open that shadow box where you've preserved your jelly-splotched napkin from jam night. Or maybe you have it encased with a couple sprinkles from Jimmy's night, right next to your old-fashioned concert ticket stubs. Take them out, Take a whiff and let us take you back. Because this is season three of Undermine, and we are setting the gear shift to the high gear of 3.0, firing up the flux capacitor and going back in time, this time to five years and an entire fish generation ago. It's off to the Baker's Dozen We Ride. I'm Tom Marshall, Fish's lyricist, and I will be your tour guide, your Fish tour guide, through the ethos, as we go flipping backwards to 2017, when the eternal subject of this podcast, Fish, took up residence in the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden, for 13 unique consecutive two-set shows. There were famously no repeats throughout the entire three-week stand, and each night featured a theme that was based on a different flavored donut. That's right. Fish's Baker's Dozen corresponded to an actual box of Federal Donuts. And if you think that's unique, just wait till you hear the details, as on this season of Undermine, we explore how Fish made 13 different flavors of rock and roll history when they took over Madison Square Garden in the summer of 2017. Oh, we're having a garden party, all right. And it starts right after a quick word from our sponsor. Wow, 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 wow. 
Those lyrics come from the song Shake Your Coconuts. And it was the perfect way for Fish to open not just Coconut Night at the Baker's Dozen, but the entire Baker's Dozen as a whole. The first song of the first out of 13 historic nights during which Fish would perform 237 unique songs over 26 sets of music with no repeats. And they were right. The party had literally just begun. Many of the fans inside that arena were there for the long haul, be it four, five, ten, or even all 13 shows. We'll speak to some of those 13 club fans throughout this season, including Diana Hank, Nick Sejas, and Sam Timberg, whom we heard from at the start of this episode. This might be a good time for me to note that I'm also in the 13 club. However, I'm not interviewed because I'm your narrator. For Fish... The Baker's Dozen was not only the biggest and most important thing they did in all of 2017, but it was a career highlight that is now framed in the Fish Foyer Wall of Fame alongside such legends of fishery as Big Cypress, The Island Tour, Cosvot Voxt, Sci-Fi Soldier, The Tower Set. The Flatbed Jam. The Fuck Your Face Show. The Giant Hot Dog They Hitched a Ride On As It Flew Across the Boston Garden. And of course, that time they inserted Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, the entire album, inside a live rendition of one of their own songs. The Baker's Dozen resulted in Fish earning a permanent banner that now hangs from the rafters inside Madison Square Garden, an honor usually reserved for sports championships and to retire the jersey of certain star athletes. For Fish, the completion of 13 nights at the Garden represented an undefeated season in their new home court. But Fish's history in the building began nearly a quarter century prior to the Baker's Dozen, when the band played their first show in the fabled World's Most Famous Arena on December 30th, 1994. In some ways, their history in MSG began even earlier than that, with an unverified report of a band member seeing Led Zeppelin there in his early teens but much more verifiable instances of at least Trey seeing several shows there throughout high school and college, including, of course, The Grateful Dead. Before we consider Fish's history at the Garden, let's consider the Garden's history before Fish, because, yes, the world's most famous arena existed long before our favorite band. In 
Okay, buckle in for a brief history of Madison Square Garden, because the arena that we all know well isn't the first, second, or even third version of Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden is named after Madison Square, which itself is named after James Madison, the fourth president of the United States. To this day, Madison Square sits at the intersection of Fifth Avenue and Broadway at 23rd Street in Manhattan. So why is the garden half a mile away from its namesake? It was actually a slow migration process. The first two versions of Madison Square Garden were closer to the park, neither of which were particularly successful. The first one didn't even have a roof, making it a horrible choice for wintertime activities apart from ice skating. But for its ice skating, it made history, housing North America's first artificial ice skating rink. Leased to P.T. Barnum, MSG 1.0 opened in 1879 and survived 11 years before its demolition. MSG 2.0 was similarly faded, although at least it had a roof. In operation from 1890 to 1925, make sure you guys write this down, the garden was designed by noted architect Stanford White, who also designed the Washington Square Arch. White was shot and killed in front of a large audience at the theater inside that version of MSG by a railroad tycoon who had become obsessed by White's alleged relationship with his wife, supermodel Evelyn Nesbitt. If you listen carefully, you can hear his cries in the New Year's Eve 2010 ghost when Mike... Oh, never mind. That's just not true. But history buffs will note that the murder led to a three-ring media circus in what was at the time called the Trial of the Century. This was 89 years before O.J. Simpson took the stand in a trial that made a run for that same title. So it was that J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, P.T. Barnum, Darius Mills, James Stillman, and W.W. Astor all formed, no, not a jam band, that would have been weird though, but rather these rock stars of business, whose names you all might know, formed the syndicate that built Madison Square Garden Take Two. If you look online at old black and white photos of this one, you'll find an impressive building fashioned after a Moorish castle, with a tower modeled after Giralda, the bell tower of the Cathedral of Seville. The garden's bell tower stood 32 stories high, making it the second tallest building in New York at the time. MSG 2.0 is a mixed-use building with a 1,200-seat theater, a 1,500-capacity concert hall, the largest restaurant in the city, and a rooftop garden cabaret. The building cost those businessmen $3 million and probably some pride when the second attempt at Madison Square Garden landed far short of the investors' expectations. It was demolished in 1925. But MSG 2.0 did start a tradition of hosting historic and or record-breaking events that continues to this day. In August 1898, Nikola Tesla demonstrated the first remote-controlled robot. Four years later, in 1902, the Garden hosted the World Series of Pro Football, which notably was the first indoor professional American football game and the first attempt at a professional American football championship game. Unlike Fish 3.0, MSG 3.0 opened for business the very same year that 2.0 fell to the ground.
initial location unlucky, the third version of Madison Square Garden was relocated to 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th, where it operated from 1925 to 1968. Designed by the noted theater architect Thomas W. Lamb, who is known for building movie palaces such as various Fox, Lowe's, and Capitol theaters, this version of MSG was known as the house that Tex built because it was financed this time by boxing promoter Tex Ricard. The arena featured seating on three levels and a maximum capacity of 18,500 spectators. Tex built it for boxing, not posterity, and its simple box shape, a contrast to the castle look of its predecessor, was punctuated by an ornate, eventually iconic, marquee above the main entrance. We promised you that Undermine wouldn't talk politics. Wait, did we? We hope that was implied anyway. But in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt held a presidential campaign rally at MSG 3.0, while Herbert Hoover also delivered his campaign's final speech there that same election season. You have nominated me, and I know it. And I am here to thank you for the honor. Roosevelt made the garden his final stump on the campaign trail during his re-election campaign four years later. He won that election too, fair and Madison Square. But the garden doesn't take sides. It has hosted both the Democratic and the Republican National Convention within its doors. Looking at the list, there's an impressive amount of firsts, record breakers, and historic nights that happened at what was quickly and legitimately becoming the world's most famous arena from college basketball games to the first televised boxing fight to be shown in living color. During a tumultuous era on this planet's timeline, the 1930s, there were rallies both for and against Nazis, multiple Communist Party USA rallies, and in 1943, the largest civil rights rally of its time, attracting a sold-out crowd who called for equal rights. It takes the willingness to stand by and do what has to be done when it has to be done. It has to And for victory in the World War against Hitler. There were rodeos featuring Gene Autry. I'm back in the saddle again. Ice skating reviews featuring Sonia Henney and the Daily News Jazz Festival. Marilyn Monroe rode an elephant around the garden for a Hollywood party in 1957 and then returned five years later in 1962 to sing Happy Birthday to Mr. President John F. Kennedy. Happy Birthday, Mr. President. Happy Birthday to you. Oh, and before we can get to Fish's Baker's Dozen, we have to recognize something. Brace yourself, because facts are facts. Half a century before Fish turned MSG into a 13-night garden party, evangelist Billy Graham had a New York City mission crusade that ran at the garden for 16 weeks. As our researcher, Matt Bavuso, noted when he uncovered that fact, R.I.P. Baker's Dozen, this dude crushed it. And what we're looking for today is the perfect man, the perfect politician, the perfect businessman, the perfect labor union leader. You're not going to find it. But that, friends, brings us to MSG 4.0. YMSG, as some of you might know it, home of the New York Rangers, the New York Knicks, Billy Joel, and Fish. 
Sure. Led Zeppelin's concert film, The Song Remains the Same, is what many people think of first when it comes to rock and roll history at the arena. But it's almost pointless to list all the bands that have performed there because the answer is everyone. From legends like Elvis Presley and Bob Marley, to the New Guard, like LCD Sound System, and recently, War on Drugs. Everyone significant has played Madison Square Garden at least once, and perhaps that's the point in itself. As for shows unique to the Garden and nowhere else, the arena was home of the concert for Bangladesh in 1972. The concert for New York City after 9-11. From the Big Apple to the Big Easy after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And 12-12-12, the concert for Sandy Relief in 2012. It has hosted WrestleManias, Stanley Cup Finals, twice even concurrently with the NBA Finals, the Grammy Awards, the fight of the century between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, and a list of other history-making nights so long that you'd tune out halfway through it. I'm sensing that we might already be risking that. So let's talk fish. date, Fish has performed 68 shows at the Garden, all of them headlining. To give context to that, the Grateful Dead played there 53 times, Madonna, 31, U2, 28, and The Who, 32. In a hotly contested accolade, Billy Joel might hold the record for the longest residency, but on a bit of technicality, since his Madison Square Garden franchise is essentially a long-running, open-ended, monthly series, which began on January 27, 2014, it takes him a year to perform a dozen shows, whereas Fish is the only band to perform more than a dozen shows without any entertainment at the arena in between. When Fish took over the building on July 21, 2017, they were the only game going for the next three weeks. And as we already said, and we'll say again because it bears repeating, and because nobody else in the history of the arena has ever come close to pulling this off, every show was entirely different with zero repeats. On that charge, Fish truly has no equal, and while Madison Square Garden has seen and hosted it all, it has seen nothing else quite like Fish. When Fish decided to perform a donut-themed 13-show residency at one stop in the place of a traditional tour, Mike, Trey, Paige, and Fish didn't sit in a back room throwing darts at a map. There was no question the venue had to be MSG. From a fan perspective, MSG made sense also. Let's talk to Jambase editor and friend of Undermine, Scott Bernstein. Madison Square Garden is where 
all the great bands have played. It's a venue that has a history that dates back to 1968 for that building, but even back a hundred years for the name Madison Square Garden. And ever since rock bands got to the level where they could fill arenas, Madison Square Garden has hosted rock concerts and some of the most memorable rock concerts in rock history took place there. And certainly Trey has talked about seeing some memorable concerts at Madison Square Garden. And as someone who grew up an hour south of Madison Square Garden, the venue was always the best place to see a concert in terms of the sound and the vibe and that magical roof that is so iconic and separates the venue where you walk in to the heart of the arena and you know where you are immediately. It is so far from a generic building. And I I think it's uh, important to any rock band, I've heard it from rock bands that are from Australia, that are from all parts of the world. They know about Madison Square Garden and they wanna play Madison Square Garden. Let's bring in Rolling Stone music critic Will Hermes to discuss geography and how Madison Square Garden is the center of Arena Rock's solar system. As far as indoor arenas, I believe it's still the largest indoor arena in the New York metro area, not counting um, stadiums. You know, it's been kind of the Super Bowl of concert venue, the place that when you've made it, um, and if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, that's where you play, that's where you take your victory lap. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, it's a big sports arena. It's got no vibe. I'm sorry. Like, due respect to Madison Square Garden, it's got zero vibe. There were seats. You generally had to sit in them. There were usually security guards hassling you to stay in your seat or at very least stay in your section. It was policed and it was not, uh, you know, it was not a lot of, uh, you couldn't freestyle in the garden. Wait, what? That's not necessarily the fish experience that we're talking about. Let's take a brief time out and when we come back, we'll explore what fish fans mean by renaming the garden YMSG. Before the break, we heard from Rolling Stone's Will Hermes, who stated the cold, hard truth that by itself, Madison Square Garden is just an arena. I've seen fish a couple of times at the garden, and they, more than any band, or certainly as much as any band, have given that place vibe. They've done what they can to make that soulless hunk of steel and concrete reverberate with warmth and vibe. 
Still, the point remains that walking into the empty building, even though it's hallowed ground, it's kind of just an arena. Not unlike countless others. Sure, it has its quirks and things that make it special, from the visual footprint outside to the sky bridges inside. But what makes Madison Square Garden special, besides its history, might have more to do with the location than architecture. New York's a melting pot culture. I think it's worth making this point. Every community has taken some ownership of that space when it can and made it signify for for their people, like going back to the 70s, 79, like the New York Salsa Fest was a huge show with Celia Cruz and Ray Barreto and Willie Colon. And that was a big deal. And even now, I remember I read a review of uh, the concert by El Alfa, the Dominican rapper, um, who I think recently sold out the venue. Maybe it was last year. I saw Eric Church the first time he played the garden, and that was huge. It was magnificent. You know, for country artists, for indie rock artists, artists from different ethnic communities, I think it still remains like you know, the gold standard for your concerts. When you, when you play there, it's, uh, you've really made it. Fish would make their big debut at Madison Square Garden in 1994, during an era in the band's history when their fan base was predominantly collegiate. Significantly, Fish's Madison Square Garden debut was during the New Year's run, a holiday time when the band's live audience would noticeably swell because college kids across the entire Northeast were out of school, on break, and able to make an easy drive to a hub city such as Boston, Philly, D.C., or New York City to attend. In 1994, in order to play an arena, Fish needed that swell. But they also still had a lot of developing to do in order to truly become an arena rock band capable of carrying a headlining show in the world's most famous arena on music's biggest night, New Year's Eve. So they made their MSG debut on December 30th, 1994, the night before New Year's Eve, 364 days after performing their largest New Year's Eve show at the time at the Worcester Centrum in Massachusetts on 12 31 93. The Centrum's capacity is just under 15,000. A year prior, in 1992, the band celebrated New Year's Eve at the Matthews Arena in Boston, with a capacity half the size of the Centrum, 6,000. And that was also Fish's largest headline concert to date. By contrast, Madison Square Garden holds around 20,000, and just one year after Fish's MSG debut, they returned for a two-night stand, selling out New Year's Eve in record time in what soon would become something of a tradition. Let's hear from one of our voices of last season, friend of Undermine and fish blogger, Mr. Miner, also known as Dave Kalarka. Fish in 1994 was really, in my opinion, when they started to really break down doors um, in, j- in their jamming style and improvisation. For that, they were a very tight, quasi prog rock band that jammed within structures, but following chord progressions, um, not really 
getting outside of the box of those set structures of each song. For example, you know, they would jam within a certain style in a Reba or in an Antelope or, you know, in a Harry Hood. But in 94, starting with their spring tour, they really started to push the walls out on those structures and become more adventurous in their jamming. That trend kind of carried through summer and really uh, the end of the year when in their fall tour, they really started to become very abstract in their improvisation, trying styles of jammings that they've never really done before, getting more and more uh, adventurous and really starting to see these larger jams start to come, you know, in the larger tweezer jams of that fall, like Bangor and Bozeman Tweezer, huge David Bowie's, like that Orpheum one in Minneapolis, and really just starting to, you know, for lack of a better term, like letting it all hang out improvisationally. And so we see this arc of more and more exploratory jamming throughout 94. And then they wind up playing MSG for the first time the New Year's run in 94, and we see a legitimate snapshot of that in the really extended tweezer they play on that night. And so kind of culminates that year, that jam, that night in MSG kind of culminates the year of 94 in a way that even New Year's Eve doesn't, which is a bit more of a uh, contained show, more of an energetic show, celebratory. And then, you know, this trend even continues into 95, where their initial tour of summer 95 is their most abstract tour to date. Really just like these incredibly extended kind of spacey jams where they would lose all reference points to any song that they'd started from. You know, we see this band really learn to jam over this two year period. And then come fall 95, we see them kind of start to reel things back in a little bit from these fall 94, summer 95 tours, which were just so exploratory. And we see them kind of synthesize this type of exploration with arena rock and playing in these larger venues for the first time because as they are going through this evolution they are becoming more and more popular and their places they're playing are becoming bigger and bigger and so we have these like these two threads that are growing in the band both improvisationally and popularity and so we see this kind of come end of 95 and when they play their two new year's shows there and end of 95 this like peak of like everything they've done to that point in their career both creatively and commercially on some level as they kind of come to this synthesis of those two pathways and peak in msg 95 which is uh, you know, that New Year's show of 95 is, is I've always said, like, the absolute, like, high point of their career starting in 83 to that date really represents everything they had tried to achieve, both creatively and commercially, to that point. You know, I think every 
that's the goal of every rock and roll band on some level is to play Madison Square Garden, you know? It's kind of seen as the mecca of rock and roll superstardom. It's like when you play MSG, it means you've made it, you know, you are a success. Um, almost like a status symbol on some level of like a rock and roll band. And so I think that it really kind of stamps their arrival on the larger music scene that they were able to, you know, play New Year's Eve, like arguably like the largest night of the year for live music in the most significant venue in America in 1995. It kind of represents success. Since we agree with all of that, let's move on to get analysis from Fish play-by-play analyst and Mockingbird board member, Scott Marks, also known as Biz Archive. This was the culmination of a major stage of growth for Fish, where playing bigger venues went from an aberration of the tour schedule to something on a more consistent basis. I'd probably pinpoint the starting at Great Woods on July 24th of 1993. Bigger venues at the end of 93, like the Worcester Centrum, leading up to the band's first show at Baston Square Garden in 1994, and Boston Garden the following night. And then it's been MSG ever since, outside of Big Cypress and a couple times in Miami. For me, I, I've always felt that New York City is the heart of New Year's Eve. You have the ball dropping in Times Square, it's just the center of everything. There's a tremendous history of Madison Square Garden, Playing indoors here meant a lot for the band, both in terms of, again, growing up and having major acts playing there and now being there themselves. I think when you play at a venue as consistently as Fish does, it becomes home, the band and the fans. You had Nectars in the front in Burlington when the band was smaller and now where they're touring around, it seems that this is that, that home spot. Trey lives in New York City and it's also his home venue and you don't really have any big venues like that up north where Paige, Mike, and Fish are. So this is kind of the closest big venue that, that works for them. Thanks, Scott. Now let's throw back to the other Scott, Scott Bernstein, who in 1994 is still many years away from flipping his desk so many times on your Twitter feed. Fish's 1994 was such a wild ride in that they started out and they were playing theaters. And by the end of the year, they had reached uh, arenas. And it was almost seemed like a story of overnight success if you didn't realize that the band had been together for 10 years and spent so long getting to where they entered 1994 and where they started 1994, selling out theaters and having grown their audience and played an arena to end 1993. It was at that time, I feel like New England was the absolute heart of the the fan base when they played the Worcester Centrum on December 31st, 1993. And I think as the band got bigger and they developed from a theater band to an arena band and uh, to a band that played Sheds, the fan base kind of moved a little bit away from the heart being in New England, a little further south, making Madison Square Garden the perfect venue to host a gathering of their fan base. And that leads us to New Year's run in 1995, where they made their New Year's Eve debut at Madison Square Garden, a year after Fish played their first concert at Madison Square Garden. 
I think the New Year's run in 1997 was important in turning Madison Square Garden into the center of the fish world and the home venue for fish. It was three nights. Um, it was the first time they'd ever played one venue during a New Year's run for three nights. And New Year's is always since Fish first played their first New Year's gig. It's been important to the band, an important time for the band. And 1997 was a key year in their history. The sound developed so much. We had cow funk taking over. And instead of this band that was trying to achieve success, they were a successful band trying to continue at that level and take it to the next level. 1997 was such a, a big year for Fish, and what way to cap it than to play at a venue that meant so much to them for three nights. And not only did they play Madison Square Garden for three nights, they they showed up. Those three shows were, were special. Uh, the second night, December 30th, 1997, is still considered one of the best fish shows of all time. And I think you finished that run feeling like fish had a new home venue and there was just something different and special about sh fish shows at Mass Square Garden that couldn't really be replicated anywhere else. New Year's runs of 97 and 98 really cemented that as their home venue, if you will. It became their chosen location for their biggest shows of the year. In 97, they played their final three shows, capping this absolutely transformative and explosive year for them. You know, the synergy of band and venue was so powerful that I think that's what really kind of started in 95 was that synergy. But then kind of 97 very much backed that up or cemented it. And then they came back and played all four nights in 1998. You know, at that point, they had played three of the last four New Year's Eves at the venue, you know, two shows in 95, three in 97, four in 98. And there was a comfort level there that had come to be for them, which was significant in their musical output while they played there. The significance of them playing more and more shows at each stop, you know, it was two in 95, two in 96, three in 97, four in 98, and eventually 13. Thank you, Mr. Minor. Now let's turn to Rob Mitchum. You'll recognize his voice from various fish podcasts, plus his co-hosting duties on Osiris Media's 36 from the Vault, as well as his appearance on season two of Undermine. Rob helped out with interviews and writing this season, and we kind of like seeing his face around here, or at least hearing his voice. The shows at Madison Square Garden in 1994 and 1995 became sort of really big symbolic landmarks of reaching this peak as a band. You know, first of all, you have the 
December 30th, 1994 show at Madison Square Garden, their debut. They sold out that show, sort of improbably, you would say. Uh, they Most of that year, they were playing in clubs and theaters. Uh, and then here at the end of the year, they are selling out the most famous arena in the country. But really, the, the, the big Madison Square Garden mid-90s fish moment is, of course, New Year's Eve 90, 1995. You know, here, it's not only the world's most famous arena, but it's the biggest night for live music. You know, the biggest city in America. And not only did they sell it out, you know, two nights, the 30th and the 31st, but they played arguably one of their greatest shows ever in this high-pressure situation. So uh, it's, it's really, it's like if you were writing a movie, it would almost seem hokey that they were able to reach sort of this critical and commercial peak at the same time in one show at Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. So I think right there is where you solidify Madison Square Garden as an important venue in fish history. So particularly for fish and how old the members are and the music they listened to growing up in the 70s. Madison Square Garden has this extra reputation, I think, of being a classic rock mecca, almost. I mean, I think everybody looks to The Song Remains the Same. The Led Zeppelin movie, filmed at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Trey has talked about this in interviews multiple times. That being, you know, one of the iconic rock movies, one of the iconic rock concerts in Madison Square Garden plays a big role in that. Uh, and there's just so much music history that happens in New York and happens at Madison Square Garden that for Fish especially, I think, you know, that venue was a goal that they were they were striving for. It was more meaningful than playing, you know, maybe some other large venues. I mean, there's other large Northeastern venues that I think they were really excited to play and became, you know, cherished venues for Fish. Uh, but Madison Square Garden kind of has that cachet of this is the top of the heap you've as a rock band in particular drawing on 70s and 80s influences you you've made it when you can headline madison square garden and sell it out You could almost see an alternate timeline where uh, a venue in Boston became Fish's, you know, home venue, quote unquote, uh, in a similar way to Madison Square Garden, because they they played Boston for New Year's Eve a lot in the early 90s. You know, being good New Englanders, I think they saw Boston as sort of their capital, if you will, more so than New York. But Boston kind of uh, blew their chance because so Fish plays the Boston Garden New Year's Eve 94. Uh, the venue gets torn down the next year, I believe. And then they open up the new Fleet Center, which by all accounts is terrible for live music. They played there in 1996 and then in 2003 and then never again. So uh, they were looking for a new home and Madison Square Garden happened to be the right place for them. It's not until, I think, 2010 when they, you know, have this deal with Madison Square Garden sort of writes a first refusal for the New Year's Eve run of shows that it, I think really becomes like this is a traditional thing that Fish is always going to do unless something weird is happening. And even if something weird is happening, breaking into the building, Madison Square Garden, and then getting invited back 68 times and counting is something that Fish in the early 90s may have dreamt about 
but never would have dared assume. The first show in 1994 was filled with the same kind of nervous energy that often leads off Fish's festival sets. A lot of openers, closers, and showcase tunes, but not necessarily stuffed with the best stuff. The stuff that makes Fish, Fish. Despite a paint-by-numbers show, it still featured a must-hear exploratory 23-minute tweezer, a 23-minute You Enjoy Myself, and a vacuum solo in the middle of Purple Rain, performed by a drummer in a donut dress who, with grand gestures, was making a mockery of just about every arena rock cliché in arena rock's highest church. When the band returned one year later on December 30th, 1995, they had a year to adjust to playing arenas and had just come off a long fall tour that finished that December with what most fans consider to be one of the greatest musical peaks of the band's career, December 1995. That tour wasn't even two weeks in the books when the New Year's run launched with two nights at the Worcester Centrum. When the band moved down to New York City to close out their biggest year yet with their first two-night stand at MSG, Fish's confidence was at an all-time high. And so, despite the buttoned-up formality of their first New Year's at the Garden, they came in hot. On December 30, 1995, Fish took to the MSG stage for just their second time there ever. And instead of performing a festival or made-for-TV set, they made everyone stand up, stand up, stand up on their heels and call. We call upon your boss! They settled right into the arena, unafraid to show their humorous personality before baring their teeth with a ferocious Harry Hood highlight. But it was the next night, December 31st, 1995, the band's first New Year's Eve in New York City that forever earned Fish a standing invite. The relationship had just begun. there was a point where Fish got a little complacent about their New Year's runs. There were, were, were some in the early aughts that it seemed like, and I hate to use this, this, this phrase, but almost like they phoned it in a little bit. They didn't go out of their way to make it special to the point where when Fish booked Madison Square Garden for 13 shows in the summer of 2017, Tickets weren't hard to come across. The shows didn't sell out immediately. It was almost like, well, it's certainly very cool that they're playing so many shows at the same place, but there was no guarantee that the shows would be extra special or would be outside the realm of a typical fish show. Once the run started, 
and it became clear that there would be no repeats. This would be no typical fish run. All of the thoughts and rules and structures of the past would be thrown out for a historic 13-show run. Tickets became impossible to find, and it didn't take that long. It took only maybe three or four shows into the run starting until that happened. I'll never forget coming home from the first Sunday night of the run, and I live maybe 20 minutes away from the venue, and seeing that Fish had announced that the theme of the next show was jam-filled, and that was the donut for, I believe it was show number four. And all bets were off at that point, and the, the Baker's Dozen took on a life of its own at that point, and became so far from your typical run of shows at one venue, even a New Year's run at Madison Square Garden. And I think Fish learned what turns on the fan base in a way that maybe they hadn't in the past during the Baker's Dozen. And that played out in some of the New Year's runs that followed right after the Baker's Dozen. I feel like the Fish New Year's runs in 2017, 2018, and 2019, I left so satisfied after those four nights in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time when a New Year's run was over. And I think the Baker's Dozen played a key role in adding to what raised the bar for Fish shows at Madison Square Garden. So the band went from performing in the garden for one night only to a two-night stand to a three-night run to full-on four-night New Year's Eve celebrations where they only played one tour stop, thereby making MSG their first home since the band's formative years in Nectars. If you want to see fish during their traditional New Year's run, you probably have to go to New York City. You know, when we talk about the Baker's Dozen, it really just allows them to settle in in a way that, you know, relaxes them as a band. Um, they're not dealing with as much from a night-to-night basis in terms of sound check, setup, loading, dealing with the types of things that are necessary when you get to a new venue each night. And so I think it became their home venue over that period of time. And it was really about comfort at that point where they walked onto that stage with a confidence and a comfort level that probably they didn't feel at any other venue in America. When Fish pulled into four Pennsylvania Plaza in the summer of 2017, they unpacked, knowing that they were going to stay for a while. We hope you do the same because we're not going anywhere. Actually, we'll be right back. Relics Magazine has their offices just a stone's throw from Madison Square Garden, which means that during the Baker's Dozen, the Relics staff, most of whom are fish heads, could casually walk to fish straight from work. That's good luck mixed with some insightful planning. Let's hear from Relics editor Mike Greenhouse. 
you know, in a lot of ways, they've always had a New York energy. You know, Trey grew up in the shadow of New York City and took guitar lessons in the city. You know, his, his mom lived here for a time and he would visit her. He currently lives here now. Three of the four members of Fish lived in New York City at, at various times during Fish's career and really planted their, their own roots here at that point. So I think that for, for all of them as music fans growing up, you know, New York City was a place that you wanted to get to to play and Madison Square Garden was the crown jewel of venues in New York City. But Mike notes, there's a lot more at play as to why Fish in New York City became such a match made in jam band heaven. Madison Square Garden is also always been, I think, a beloved venue because of the way it was constructed, its, its size and its layout. Uh, in a lot of ways, Madison Square Garden feels like a really big club. You know, it's, it's a small round, the ceilings are lower. Um, if you look up at it from those seats, you have um, the big jumbos on screen and, and that little drop roof that makes it feel more of, of a, like a club than some other sports arenas that host music. The floor of MSG, because it is built on top of Penn Station, has like this really crazy cool bounce feel to it, which again, has always reminded me of being at a smaller club than say when I go to an, uh, another arena, uh, which has a similar size that maybe feels a little bit more sterile or a little bit more like a generic uh, arena where any sports team could play. MSG, before it had its redesign not too long ago, had uh, this inner ring as well, which kind of added to that club feel, especially at shows by bands like Fish and The Grateful Dead and Dave Matthews and Widespread Panic, where, where people would congregate at the show. They would use that that ring to meet up with friends and you didn't actually have to go out into the, uh, the concourse vending area like you do at most traditional arenas. Of course, that's been changed in recent years, unfortunately, and, and removed for many years when Fish and some of the other bands I mentioned were playing. That was a big part of the experience. You could meet up with people, you could congregate and, and commune in a way that you couldn't at other arenas. A lot of the fans we talked to, both this season and last, recall MSG's lost inner ring as being a feature emblematic of many old hockey arenas that helped solidify fans' initial fondness for the garden. I loved and I miss is the inner concourse. There was this like inner ring around the whole venue where you could walk 360 degrees around the band while they played. And during shows and during this dead show, it was just thick with people. That's the voice of the good old Grateful Dead cast co-host, respected music critic and celebrated author, Jesse Jarno. It was like kind of like a shakedown street imported into the inside of a venue, but just this like infinite path, like this, you know, MC Escher loop of Wooks, you know, walking around the, the inside of the garden and, you know, dancing and spinning and, and smoking weed and stopping each other and hanging out and just, you know, being a, a, a mini headed fire trap or whatever it was. It just gave the room so much personality because you're sort of watching this like if you were above it, it's just like watching this like constantly writhing mass of humanity. But it's, it, it's you know, you're watching the, the culture of the show or something. It's like it, it's this whole other thing. Um, and it gave the room this completely alive feel. Like once you're at your seat and watching the show, it's a great place to see a show now, but it's almost not like the same venue in a lot of ways. Like to me, that inner concourse was was Madison Square Garden. That was kind of like what gave it that that bonkers energy. And, you know, it was it was definitely like that at other shows. So, you know, way more at fish shows 
and and that one dead show but but other other rock concerts i saw you know that I mean but the thing is that's just how buildings worked before you know and in a lot of ways like what happened to the garden is just like an architectural manifestation of like corporate venues and and kind of the sort of the, the corporate overtaking of, of new york summarized into a building i will say one thing before i get started that's that's uh, specifically I like about playing about, um, in this room. Some of you probably know that we're up kind of on the like fifth floor or seventh floor or something. So we're very high off the ground. And um, when certain grooves start happening, you probably feel like the floor goes up and down here. Well, however cool it feels to you up there, it feels even cooler up here. The mic stand starts going back and forth. And so, uh, as the next, you know, night and a half keeps going on, if you guys can get the floor bouncing, it feels very cool. It's like riding on a boat or something. So I'm trying to get it going. I think, no, I, th- I think that's a pretty, play Madison Square Gardens, I'm sure it's a huge thing for, for pretty much anybody. New York has a range of, of venues. Like it's got like, it's got super dumpy places like Roseland. It's got, you know, really sort of nice clubs. It's got, you know, places like the Beacon Theater, which used to be really nice, but the time that Fish were playing, it was kind of run down. And the garden in the 90s was kind of all of those things. It was kind of run down and kind of dumpy, but there was also this very grand thing about this is Madison Square Garden. And part of that is just the size of it. You know, it's just like, it's the giant venue in New York. And, and in some ways there's almost, there was almost nothing inherently special about it, but, there also was, there is a, a, a mojo to that room. Like there, that did feel undeniable. And part of that was just like walking into it in the nineties, there was still a little bit of like the funk of the seventies somehow. Like it still felt like in the night, there was still like, it still felt like the old garden. It still felt like a bit of that old strange New York, you know, pre-corporate New York. And that, you know, and that, that was, that was powerful. If Madison Square Garden's dumpiness was once its charm, complete with omnipresent clouds of cigarette and pot smoke that used to form such a thick fog in the center of the arena you could barely see across it, the current, since-renovated Madison Square Garden is not without its own special appeal. One thing we hear repeatedly from fans who attended multiple nights at the Baker's Dozen is the bond that they form with the venue staff, a bond that the band feels to this day, as Trey has talked about in interviews, how he feels welcome backstage when he's a guest at other shows, and how he's on a first-name basis with the staff, including ushers and security guards. It was cool because the security guard that was right in front of me lived where I grew up on Long Island. So me and him used to chat, you know, before the shows. And if I get, if I didn't like that night's donut, I'd give it to the security guards. And, you know, and we actually kept in touch over the years, you know, me and this guy. And, uh, he asked me to send him CDs of the shows. I made him like I made him like five or six CDs of different parts of the run and sent it to him. And he loved it. That's legendary Grateful Dead taper Charlie Miller reflecting on the special quality of the Baker's Dozen. Charlie attended every show of the run and taped all of them. Next week on Undermine, we'll explore the concept of the long gig and the influence that multiple night runs had on Fish as they contemplated a three-week residency in New York City. We'll explore where the band was at musically and creatively when they arrived at 4 Pennsylvania Plaza in the summer of 2017 as our coverage of Fish at the Baker's Dozen five years later continues. Let's close out this episode with a banner-raising observation from a Wook. It was absurd in the best way possible. 
otherwise known as Tim Donahue. Tim produces the Wook Plus channel on YouTube and runs the Weekend Wook Twitter account. You're already super high on emotion, right? Like with everything, it's the end of it. And then you're like, you're all in the moment, like this is beautiful, this is so deserving. And then about like a third of the way up, you're like, they're jam band, getting their band erased in an arena. Like, I don't know, it was, it seemed a little absurd until he gets up there and then you're like, but this is their home, right? Like with Corona and and the lights and the venue and the, and the staff, I mean, the, the employees at the uh, MSG are some of the most phenomenal staff you see at a show. They're unbelievably supportive and friendly and the, and the fans give it back to them with love and everybody did high fives and hugs. And it felt like they had, they had put their flag in like, this is our home too, right? It's the Rangers. It's the Knicks, it's whatever other, I guess Billy Joel on some days, but that's Fish's home, right? And that's what that ultimately was in a very absurd way. Right. As always, stay tuned after the credits for a glimpse into next week, this week. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, Matt Dwyer, and Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. It is written by Benji Eisen. Production assistance from Rob Mitchum, Matt Bavuso, Christina Collins, and Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. Next week, not on Undermine, famed Grateful Dead taper Charlie Miller. It was humbling, man. It was. I mean, I saw the Grateful Dead breakout St. Stephen at the Garden. You know, I've seen some amazing things. I saw Peter Frampton on the Frampton Comes Alive tour at the Garden. And it was just so magical to be back there because the place has got just such incredible energy. But... It didn't really sink in until I think it was the second night had a city's encore. That's when it really sunk in to hear, you know, you hear the whole place singing to singing everything. And I mean, it was awesome until that point, but that's when it really sunk in what was happening because everybody was saying, oh, I heard there's going to be no repeats, no repeats. And and, uh, I don't think we knew at that point. It wasn't it wasn't like announced that there's going to be no repeats, but I think the speculation. Osiris. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song. 
This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.